All right, this past year, the armed forces opened all combat positions to women. So now for the first time in American history, female service members will be able to drive tanks, to fire mortars, to lead infantry soldiers into combat, and even serve in elite special forces units like the Green Berets or the the Navy SEALs. You know, among G7 sort of developed nations, only about 24% of managerial positions are held by women which is why billionaire COO of Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, has made a career of encouraging women, if you've read her book, to lean in to their careers and not to lean back into motherhood. One of those, leaning in, honors women, whereas the other, to lean back, actually sells them out. And despite all of its diversity messages, Hollywood's elite are notoriously more male and pale than just about any American corporate boardroom, which is why Oscar nominee Jessica Chastain has launched a public campaign to bring about greater diversity within Hollywood and the industry. So if you have been at all following the conversation over the past 50 years or so, much of the public discourse when it comes to gender has been about rights and equality between the sexes. Rights and equality between the sexes. But if you've been listening carefully in the last few years, you may have picked up that the conversation is changing. Today, the conversation is not so much about equality between the sexes. It's actually much more about the ambiguity of sex. So, for example, the last time I looked for cologne... I remember walked into the department store, I went to the counter, I glanced around, a bit confused, and finally looked at someone and said, hey, where are the men's scents? And the person behind the counter with a slightly disapproving frown said, well, well, they're all unisex. Now, I confess, I'm really not ready for Old Spice on my wife. Maybe my nose is just a bit too sexist, I don't know, but I just raised that as an example. Maybe, I'm not going to make it, if you use Calvin Klein's one, I make no judgment upon you. But at any rate, if for all its intentions, the egalitarianism of our culture is really leading to a homogenization between men and women. And we see it increasingly in unisex cologne and unisex clothes and unisex roles and unisex lifestyles. And so it's no surprise then that Christians are having to think hard about gender as it relates to the church. Because in the past few decades, this conversation of gender and sexuality within the church has been a lightning rod issue that has really divided a lot of the mainline Protestant denominations, whether or not you're thinking of Anglicanism or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church and others. So, for example, how do we think about things like women pastors? How do we think about deacons? What about the plethora of other ways men and women are called to serve the body? Are there any boundaries around how men and women are to serve. And if they are, how do we encourage men and women to work happily and well within those boundaries without suggesting a hierarchy of value or worth to them? 
All right, well, these are just some of the things that we want to be thinking about together this morning as we really begin this second message in a three-part series just entitled Gender, God's Good Gift. And just two notes as we begin. Number one, if you're visiting with us, this is a bit abnormal. Normally, you're going to have me open up my Bible. I'll read through a text, and the point of my message will be the point of the text, expositional preaching. This morning, it's more of a topical. I'm going to be gathering some of the Bible's collective teaching on a particular issue and presenting that. We'll do that on occasion. Just a second word to parents, a word to parents. There shouldn't be anything, I don't think, in this sermon that will be too difficult for young ears. So just note that if you're a parent. Next week, as we think about homosexuality, same-sex attraction, transgenderism, there we're going to be hitting on some more sensitive issues, but I don't see anything this morning that would be too difficult or too hard for for young ears. Okay, so just a a bit of a recap, because it was two weeks ago we started with, with the first of the talks, and there we saw, most importantly, in Genesis 1, that men and women are created equal in God's image. Men and women equal in God's image. Both men and women are indispensable in the task of expanding the garden temple of Eden and thereby expanding God's presence around the globe. All right, so Christianity in that sense is very different from Scientology, where sort of greater rungs of blessing can only be afforded by the rich. It's very different from Hinduism with all of its caste system. It's very different from Islam, where men are, quote, a degree above women in status. Because, quote, Allah has made them, made the one man superior to the other. Surah 2 and Surah 4. Right? Just, and in the midst of that kind of teaching that you'll often find around the world, the Bible knows none of it. Right? There's, there's no, in Christianity, there's no JV, there's no varsity, there's no racism, there's no sexism. There is unadulterated spiritual equality, and we thought about that with Galatians 3. So if you've come in this morning and you want to know, okay, how as an individual am I going to be made right before God? How can I have the spiritual equality with other Christians, how can I be reconciled to God? How can I know Him? How can I be a son of God? The Bible's really clear. It begins by recognizing that we in and of ourselves are alienated from God, and we need to be reconciled to Him by trusting that when Jesus Christ lived His life upon this earth, it was a perfect life, the life you and I can't live. When He died, the death on the cross, He died in our place as a substitute We deserve death for our sins, but Jesus lovingly and willingly took that upon himself. And now we can be reconciled to God. We can be truly his sons and heirs of the kingdom, men and women equally co-heirs of the kingdom when we repent and when we believe and when we trust in him. And we have confidence that God will accept that because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father, and one day he will return and bring us home. That's what we believe as Christians, and that most basic belief about the gospel is what gender points us toward. We thought about that last week, and yet despite the fact that men and women are equal in God's image, they are not identical. So we saw beginning in Genesis 2 that there are functional distinctions where the husband is tasked as being the head and the wife is the helper. So there's a complementarity to their roles, a complementarity that the New Testament continues to affirm in passages like Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3 or Titus 2, 
Okay, that's great. How do we think about those distinctions, though, within the church? Two different realms. What's happening in the home, what happens in the church, two different realms. And at this point, I think it's common for many Christians just to jump to Titus 1, Titus 2, and they talk about men's ministry, and men's ministry becomes all about really exercising authority and avoiding pornography. And women's ministry, well, they are called to be busy at home, Titus 2. And in the end, what can sometimes happen is men feel empowered to do all the meaningful stuff within the body, and women can feel relegated to the sort of nursery and the nebulous world of women's ministry, however you want to define that. But if that's your sort of understanding of the issue, the first thing I just want to note is that if, if, if just working with women and children is somehow demeaning, well, that should rebuke all of us because that just reveals how much we've brought into the cultural assumptions of the value of children and women. But similarly, beyond that, that kind of a basic understanding of when men's and women's ministry within the body, it's not really that faithful to Scripture. It's not that faithful to Scripture. So one of the first things I want us to see this morning is that Scripture doesn't just permit but expects men and women to participate in the vast majority of the church's ministry. And I know that's a very cumbersome first point. I apologize, but there it is. Late last night, I couldn't think of anything better. Okay. It's not that I started the sermon late last night. I just couldn't tighten it up. Okay, so let me say it again. Scripture doesn't just permit, but expects men and women to participate in the vast majority of the church's ministry. Okay, we see that first in how they're all equally, men and women, gifted to serve. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up with me. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I don't have a page number if you're using a pew Bible. I apologize. But if you're looking for it, go about four-fifths of the way through the Bible. Go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go past Acts, past Romans, and you'll be there in 1 Corinthians and look for chapter 12, and I'll begin in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Notice what he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, And then he'll mention knowledge and then faith and healing and miracles and prophecy and tongues. He'll go on in chapter 12, verses 28, to refer to teaching and administration and others. And then he'll say, ending that section in chapter 12, end that last paragraph, verse 11, he says, all these, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay, so what do we want to learn from this? Well, God has given a variety of gifts to the church, and notice those gifts aren't apportioned according to gender. They're not apportioned according to gender. Men and women alike are greatly gifted by God for the building up of the body, and thus both are expected to use those gifts, verse 7, for the common good, for the good of the whole body. Though God will give some boundaries to the exercise of these gifts, 
on the whole, men are meant to be edified by women, and women are meant to be edified by men. But it's not just that they're equally gifted to serve. We also see throughout the New Testament, they're equally commanded to serve, to serve one another. You think of all the one another commands of the New Testament. Romans 15, 14, Paul instructs the church there, not just when they gather, but in their daily lives. He says, instruct one another. Galatians 5, 13, we thought about this a few weeks ago. The body's called to serve one another. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart toward God. Hebrews 3.13 calls us to exhort one another, not just men exhorting men or women exhorting women. There's an there's a ex- exhortation that happens among the body, men and women together. Hebrews 10.24, consider how to stir up one another toward love and to good works in part by not neglecting to meet together. James 5.16, the bodies to pray for one another. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality toward one another. All right, isn't hospitality just what ladies do with like their aprons and bonnets? Well, maybe in your world, but not in the Bible's world. It's not a woman's calling, hospitality. It's a Christian's calling. Did you ever notice that of the only two places that list the qualifications for elders, hospitality is a qualification of male elders, right? Instruct, admonish, and exhort one another. You mean Paul's saying and teaching us that men need to be learning from women. That's exactly right. Men do need to be learning from women, right? Just think of Priscilla and Aquila. We learn in Romans 16.4 that Paul there refers to this sort of dynamic married duo as his fellow workers in Christ who risked their neck for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. And then we're told how this underground church meets in their home, right? Priscilla and Aquila were both involved, husband and wife team, in gutty and in in just gritty Christian ministry. And both of them are gifted theologians. For when they encounter in in Acts 18, when Priscilla and Aquila encounter Apollos, himself an eloquent and powerful orator and communicator, they recognize this Apollos is tremendously gifted, but there's there's something quite off with his teaching. It's not quite right. It's incomplete. But what did Priscilla do? Did she get up and say, like, did she shout him down from her pew? Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or does she get up and shove him aside and say, okay, let me explain the faith more carefully and, and better? No, Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18, 26, they hear him, they recognize there's something not quite right, and afterward they pull him aside and privately together they, quote, explained the way of God more accurately to him. And when they did that, the, the picture we get is not that Priscilla and Aquila invite Apollos into their home and Aquila says, hey, honey, like, go make the cookies. It's time for the men to talk theology. You know, the impression, both of them, her name listed first, both of them gathering together, they're cracking open their Bibles, and they're saying, okay, Apollos, you're a gifted guy, but you need some better training. And they give him a seminary training in what he did not understand. Right? Calvin will say, of this, one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a woman. First Timothy, 
his theologication by women, and we should be able to praise God for that. You know, I'm helped by books and by articles that women write. I'm helped by hearing them speak. I'll never forget the first time I heard Rosaria Butterfield speak. She was a, a tenured lesbian uh, literature professor, women's studies professor at Syracuse, and she talks about her train wreck of a conversion and how God saved her and called her out of that. And I was riveted for every 50 minutes that she spoke. Right. If you get a chance, we got two books from hers on the bookstall, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert and Openness Unhindered. Excellent writing, super helpful, highly encourage you to buy them. And Troglin, I'm sorry if I didn't give you enough of a heads up to order more. But next week, if we run out, Men and women together helped Paul in his missionary journeys. So Paul will commend Timothy. He'll commend Titus. But notice, what else does Paul do? He commends Euodia and Syntyche, women who, quote, labored by my side with me in the gospel, Philippians 4.3. If you keep reading about Paul's own ministry, we come across women like Phoebe. And when it t- came time for Paul to ensure that his sort of magnum opus on the gospel, the book of Romans to ensure that it would get to Rome, where the spiritual well-being of those Christians in Rome in part depended upon this letter arriving to them, for a journey fraught with perils and fraught with danger, we might expected Paul to grab like the equivalent of some old retired Navy SEALs who got saved and like make sure my letter gets there. But that's not what he does. Rather, he taps a single, valuable, and deeply trustworthy woman named Phoebe. And she's the one who takes that gospel to Rome. Yet, while equally gifted to serve, commanded to serve, right, those are some of the ways that that men and women serve within the life of the body throughout the week. But in addition to that, we see in Titus 2 that there are some distinctions in the way men and women will relate to one another. So we read in verse 3 of Titus chapter 2, that older women are to teach what is good, to so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Right, That kind of ministry, a woman-on-woman ministry, well, that's dependent upon ladies with one another. So I can stand up here and I can do some teaching on biblical femininity, but I can't model it. I can't model it in the same way that another woman can model it for a woman. We need, within this body, older women willing to do that work, right? With an increasing number of college students and young adults, we're in even greater need for those who are willing to spend time and help model for younger women what it would look like to live after God. Women who would have robust theology, gritty, good ministry, to do that with one another. And of course, we need older men. If you read Titus 2, you see much the same concern for the self-control of younger men, older men pouring into younger men. And why is that important? Not just for fellowship, but so that the word of God may not be reviled. That's what Paul says there in Titus. That's the concern of this ministry of men on men and women on women, that the word of God would not be reviled. Friends, what I just want you to see is you don't need a men's ministry breakfast a couple weeks out of the year. You don't need an annual women's retreat to do this kind of ministry amongst one another. All you need is a Bible and a willing heart that's willing to open that up, care for others, share with them, and pray with them. 
That's what we need. That's what we have to give ourselves toward. But friends, these are just some of the examples of how both men and women are gifted. They're equipped throughout the week. But there's more we see when we think about the gathered life, when the church corporately comes together like we've done now. We look at our gathered life together in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul assumes, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, that both men and women in the corporate assembly are praying and prophesying. Chapter 11, verse 4, 1 Corinthians, he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, and then he refers to every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. And we can get lost in the weeds of what's the deal with the head coverings and what's prophecy all about, but that just leads us astray from the fact that Paul's not faulting this praying and prophesying by men and women. It's the manner in which it's done that's problematic, but it's not the, the reality, the element itself. And it would be clear prophecy that he's commending for men and women. It's, it's not infallible speech, like in the Old Testament sense of, of foretelling the truth infallibly. It's not preaching. It seems to be more the, the immediate, informal, kind of unpremeditated insights into the meaning and application of Scripture, much like if you were in ABF this morning and you're going around and having a discussion, you might have had men and women sharing on, on the truths of verses. It might be something like a missionary sharing, someone giving a, a public testimony before baptism or sharing a testimony of grace like we have on a Sunday night. That, the expectation is that that is something men and women are doing together in the life of the body. And some of you might say, yeah, but doesn't Paul say something about women being silent in chapter 14? Yes, he does, but if you go there, the context is the authoritative evaluation of the prophecies that have been given, not the fact that such praying and prophesying is happening. Okay, why do I say all that? Well, because practically, I think the churches that prohibit women from ever praying or reading or sharing publicly, I think they go beyond Scripture. I think they draw a line in the sand where Scripture's not drawing a line. And just as a church family, that, I think that should challenge us. For at least in, in my recent memory here, all of about a year and a half or so now, it's not been our practice for women either to read Scripture on Sunday morning, for women to be praying and I think in doing so, we're restricting part of the body from serving in a way that God would intend them to serve. It would be my hope that we wouldn't continue to prohibit what Paul would so obviously welcome. Now, as we think more about our corporate life together, it's worth noting things like, hey, ever realize both men and women vote in our congregational meetings? And that may seem to you as like, okay, why in the world is he bringing that up? What's the significance of that? You can skip over it. But we're a congregational church, which means we believe, not because we're in an American democracy, but because we think Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the congregation, not just a set of elders, which means he gave an invested authority on matters of discipline and doctrine and matters of membership and leadership. That final authority is vested with the gathered congregation, not merely the hands of a few men. Since every believer belongs to the gospel, every believer is therefore responsible to protect the gospel and the people of the gospel, which means practically every member of our church, men and women, not just the elders, every member, man and woman, is finally responsible for knowing Scripture, 
applying Scripture to the life of the church, defending the church from error, exercising the discipline of the church. Right? Both men and women are responsible for guarding this church from sin and error, and that was Jesus' intention. That was his intention for us. And it's worth noting that that is true of this church. In a way, it's not going to be true of other traditional Episcopalian, Methodist, even Bible churches or Presbyterian churches. Again, not because we're trying to throw a bone to some egalitarian notion in us. It's because that's what Jesus desired. That's what he intended. That's the authority he gave to men and women within the body. I think there's one other corporate aspect of our life where I want us to see men and women equally called to serve with one another, and that's in the office of deacon. That's in the office of deacon. And I recognize I say that, and some of you are like, oh, this makes you squirm a little bit because in your experience in history, Baptists haven't traditionally had deaconesses. And I think that's largely in part because in recent Baptist history, deacons have functioned a lot more like elders, like spiritual leaders, where they have play authoritative role in the life of the body. You know, but when you look at the New Testament, it's really clear you have the office of elder giving spiritual leadership, which we'll think to in a moment. You have deacons coming around and facilitating that more in an administrative sense, and then you have members who do the ministry. That's what you see clearly in the Scriptures. And I don't think the Bible prohibits a woman from serving as a deacon. I think the Bible, in fact, provides for it, even anticipates it. There's nothing in the nature of a diaconal role that would prohibit a woman from serving. They don't teach the word. They wouldn't exercise authority over the congregation in 1 Timothy 2.12, like we'll think of in a few minutes. Rather, in Acts 6, we're going to see they help to facilitate, to coordinate ministry, which, if I just have to make obvious, I mean, women are doing all the time already in the life of this body, whether you're talking Jody or Tammy or Nita or Haley or Courtney or Danielle, or Lynn, or Casey, or Jennifer. I can just keep going. Women coordinating and facilitating that kind of ministry all the time in the life of the body. Second, I think 1 Timothy 3 speaks directly to women deacons. One of the passages that speaks to the qualifications for elders and deacons, 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then you get chapter 3, verse 11, and if you're reading in ESV, it says, their wives likewise must be dignified. But if you've got an ESV, you're going to have a footnote there saying, actually, that could also be read just wives or women. And that can create some confusion. Well, which is it? Is it the wives of the male deacons? Is it just wives, period? Like you can have deaconesses only if they're married. Is it just women, referring to single or married women? Well, the text literally reads the woman or the women, plural, must be dignified. Right? There's no personal pronoun there, or possessive, I should say. There's no possessive pronoun like there. It's not in the Greek text. Um, and I'm going to spare you a lot of grammatical exegesis other than to say, I think the footnote in your Bible is a much better way of reading. Namely, the women, Paul's thinking there, the women who serve as deacons, likewise must be dignified. And I think that reading makes sense because otherwise you're having to explain why in the world is Paul so concerned with the quality of a deacon's wife and so 
unconcerned with the quality and character of an elder's wife. Says nothing of that. I guess, again, he's referring to deaconesses. Furthermore, Romans 16.1, what's Phoebe referred to but a deacon? And that may mean simply how she served, her service to the church, but it may refer to her being in the office of a deaconess, especially since it connects her deaconing to the church that she was a part of there in Sancria, right? She was a deacon of the church. Historically, Baptist churches have had deaconesses. Well, actually, the ancient church had deaconesses. You go way back in the earliest churches. There's a long Baptist history, the very first Baptist in the early 17th century, the first confessions coming out in 1609, had elder and deacon, and under the deacon office, they mentioned men and women. That was customary throughout the 17th century. At the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention that we're a part of in the 19th century, the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention wrote a treatise on the church, in which case he argued for, biblically, both elder, pastor, and deacon, and under deacon, both men and women. Our current confession of faith allows for women to serve as deacons, but at present, our constitution as a church doesn't. Our constitution doesn't. I also, I think that's unfortunate. It restricts women from serving in a capacity that I think the Bible intends for them. Even more importantly, I think it unintentionally, it it dishonors them And it denies us as a body from benefiting from a lot of the work that they do. Now, can they do that work and never hold the office or title? Absolutely. And God bless them for it as they do. But I think it's only right and appropriate as a church that we would recognize those who meet those qualifications and as a church equip them to do that work effectively. And I would hope alongside the elders, I would hope long-term to lead us in a church in that direction. Okay, so I've gone on for a while. Why have I talked so much about the various ministries that men and women are to jointly share together? It's because when you talk about gender in the church, you so often begin with the distinctions and what men and women can't do, and that blurs and takes out of focus the significant similarities and the significant tasks that men and women equally are called to do together. There are more similarities in how we're called to love one another in the life of the body and serve one another in the life of the body than there are dissimilarities. So, we said that Scripture doesn't just permit but expects men and women to participate in the vast majority of the church's ministry. But secondly, and here's the qualifier, accept and the office and role of pastor. So it does not just permit but expect men and women to participate in the vast majority of the church's ministry, except, secondly, accept the office and role of pastor. Right? There is one office and function that God reserves for qualified men in the life of the church. That is that office of, of elder, pastor, overseer. Those words are just used interchangeably in the New Testament. And we note that in the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, one of the things we find is that the elder is to be a husband of one wife. The assumption is that he is a man. We see this even affirmed in the nature of eldering work. So I don't know if you've ever given thought to this, the nature of eldering work. But we see that elders provide through the church or for the church through their biblical teaching, 1 Timothy 3 and 4. They protect the church from falsehood. Titus 1.9, they lead the church by their example, 1 Peter 5.3, they bear responsibility before God for the well-being of the church, Hebrews 13.17, and if you stop, 
What does that remind you of? Those responsibilities to provide, to protect, to lead, to bear responsibility. Well, if you were listening two weeks ago, those responsibilities pretty well sum up what God tasked Adam to do in his care for his wife, right? She was to work and to watch over, provide and protect for her, to care, to bear responsibility for, as we see in Genesis 3. The biblical picture of elder leadership in the scriptures, it's gendered. It's gendered. It's masculine. Not a worldly machismo, right? Not a self-centered kind of swagger, not a bravado among the men, not a, a sinful kind of dominance or subjugation would, would use others for personal gain. It's the kind of masculinity, biblical masculinity, that reflects an unyielding commitment to both serve and to shelter Christ's bride. It's humble and benevolent toward God's sheep, and yet also sturdy and strong to protect them against the ravages of the wolves that might come in from the outside. So it's just a good reminder for us as we think about elders as a church, as your elders continue to pray for more elders, as we look and talk about those who might be willing and able to serve as elders, pray that God would give us more men like this. If you're a man this morning and you don't aspire to have elder-like quality like this, a good question to ask is, why wouldn't you? Why would you not desire to have this quality? Even if you were never recognized in the office, why would you not want this quality? Women, just to note, you should desire a man who loves as elders are called to love and lead and to protect. I recognize there may be other men who are richer, other men who are better looking, but no other man will cause you to flourish and blossom such as a man who loves and ministers to you like elders are called to do for the church. But this pattern of male leadership and authority, it's also just consistent with the biblical patterns of authority as you look throughout the Bible. For a while, you're going to see prophet, prophetesses in the Old and New Testaments. What you're not going to find are any women priests, women heads of tribes, Women kings, Athalia wrongly usurped the throne. Women apostles, women elders. The Bible provides this very clear and uniform picture of male leadership within the church. And one of the clearest passages that spell this out and some of these distinctions practically in the life of the body is 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the other text we're going to look at um, this morning, 1 Timothy 2. If you have a Bible, let me just encourage you to turn there, past Corinthians, through some of Paul's other letters you get past Thessalonians right into 1 Timothy chapter 2. And as you turn there, Paul's overarching concern in 1 Timothy is godliness. And for Paul, godliness is recognizing who we are, where we stand, and how we fit with respect to other people, and then behaving appropriately in those relationships. That's so much what 1 Timothy is about. And the purpose statement of 1 Timothy is right there in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, I'm writing this book, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Notice, Paul's concern as he writes 1 Timothy is for the gathered church body. Right? He's not talking so much about what they do Monday through Saturday, but, but what's happening when they gather on Sundays, the gathered church body, much like his concern is in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And if you look back at 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, Paul says, let a woman learn. She is to do that. She's to learn. Well, how? Well, quietly and with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, there's a lot I could say. I just want to emphasize a few things. Paul, notice, he gives a positive exhortation. Women are to learn. But then that's followed by a negative restatement of that positive learning. Yeah, she is to learn, but there's a manner in which that's to happen, and it's not to entail teaching or exercising authority. And that's followed by two reasons why, verses 13 and 14, and then closes with a promise in verse 15. And again, notice what Paul's assuming. Women are to be learning in the body. All women are theologians. Women will be passionate about something. We better make sure in our churches they're passionate about the right things. Passionate about the right things. Want them to know the word. And just at this point, it's worth noting that Paul's encouragement for women to learn it all, that would have been a remarkable thing. In most cases, women were never, rece- never permitted to receive the same instruction as men. In the Talmud, which is a compilation of Jewish teaching, one rabbi actually said, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. So that's the chauvinistic rabbinical world that Jesus and Paul upend. They turn that upside down, and they rebuke that. But they are nonetheless restricted women from teaching and exercising authority. And when Paul's referring to teaching here, he's referring to someone who's gifted by the Spirit and who brings that sort of authoritative instruction and the life and the doctrine of the church as you have when you hear me bring a sermon on Sunday morning. It's the kind of teaching identified with the office of elders he talks about in the next chapter, chapter 3. And that word translated to exercise authority over, it's, it's to have a governing control, a ruling control. And in the New Testament, that is what is reserved again for that office of elder in 1 Timothy 3 and then in 1 Timothy five seventeen. All right, so then what about, for example, this is what we'll come across in churches sometimes, what about women who teach under the delegated authority of male elders, like in a Beth Moore situation, where a woman can't hold the office of elder, but she can preach sort of underneath the umbrella of those elders and their authority? Well, I think it's very clear in the context that Paul's not just speaking of the office of elder, but of the function of of teaching and exercising authority. And the fact that one would try to delegate that teaching doesn't in any way evacuate Paul's commands in 1 Timothy 2.12, especially because he grounds those commands in creation in verses 13 and 14, which is transcultural. It is binding. And it's not something that you can just set aside for personal convenience or you feel the pressure of the world and you want that like cultural release valve just to let a little steam out. That's not something that Bible permits. Can women teach? Yes. Yes, they can. Can they be exceptional teachers? Absolutely. Should women teach? Yes. We desperately need teachers, women in all kinds of contexts. Should they teach in mixed settings of the public assembly like I'm doing now? No. No, the Bible, I think, is very clear on that. Not according to Paul. And yet, Not for a moment does that make them any less valuable or any less worthwhile as a result. Because the reality is the vast majority and the men in this room haven't been been set aside to do what your elders are called to do, right? 
only a sub, small subset of men are called to do this kind of work. That doesn't make every other man somehow less valuable if he's not doing it. Yeah, what about Deborah's leadership in the book of Judges? You know, she sometimes presented this counterexample. Well, I don't think she's a good example that would undermine this teaching of male headship and authority within the body. She was a prophetess and a judge. But if you read the stories, she never exercised that role like the men, prophets, and judges were to exercise. Always private, not in public, private, individual tutoring sessions. Her role as a judge was the same. So when Israel needed to go out to battle, usually the judge would lead her out. That should be her. What does she do? She says, no, that's actually Barak. That's your job. Barak won't do it. He totally fails and folds. And she rebukes him, and that whole story becomes a tragic reminder of how fall, of how far in the book of Judges Israel had actually fallen from God's design and from God's purpose. Now, that doesn't mean in any way we should despise or ignore Deborah. We should be thankful for her, for all the ways she served and she honored God when Israel abandoned him. The never, issue has never been, can women teach, can women lead? Of course they can. The issue is not ability, it's oughtness. And is doesn't mean should. Right? Just because one can do something doesn't mean they should do something. What about women teaching and things like adult Bible fellowships, like we had this morning, or leading mixed small groups, or women presenting at a parachurch conference, or, or being a teacher in a seminary? Right, those are all good questions, but we've got to recognize when we ask them, we're asking questions the Bible doesn't directly address. Paul is speaking about the gathered assembly. And the gathered assembly, what we do here, when we gather under the word, which is what we're called and commanded to do, when we celebrate the baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances of the church that no other organization or institution is meant to celebrate, all reserved for the local gathering. When we do that, it's distinct. What happens here is distinct. And none of those settings I just mentioned are the same as the gathered assembly. So well-meaning Christians can differ in their practice. And I think there's a spectrum. And the further you move away from the authoritative teaching of the gathered body, the less concern I have. So I wouldn't have concerns with a female facilitating a life group discussion, you know, where, where there's, some, there's some notes, there's some things you're just facilitating a discussion. I wouldn't have a concern with that. Where I was at, I would have more questions about that same female consistently teaching through the minor prophets in the ABF. I think one is just a little bit closer to the authoritative teaching, the extension of the ministry of the church, than the other. Okay, you've been patient. I want to wrap this up with a warning and an encouragement. On the warning, I recognize in our rights culture, it is, it is the cardinal sin, the unpardonable sin to make any distinction on the basis of gender. The assumption is that such distinctions inevitably lead people to states of inferiority or makes them second-class citizens. So maybe some of you will remember back in 04 when President Bush at the time, uh, he gave the sort of let out on the controversial appointment of, uh, of J. Leon Holmes to this state's district court. Some of you may remember that. And Diane Feinstein from my great state of California, she took great umbrage at that. And some of you may remember why. She said, leading a national fight in opposition, how can I, or any American for that matter, believe that one who espouses gendered relationships of authority and submission 
in the church, because that was the issue with him, how can anyone believe that that man can interpret the Constitution fairly? Well, that was back in 04. Long, a lot has happened since 04. And yet, even as she says that, we've got to remember as Christians that authority structures don't entail greater value or essential superiority of those in charge. It doesn't minimize the value and, and worth of those under their charge. And the, the interpretive gymnastics that enable you to get from what God prohibits, women exercising authority and teaching, the interpretive gymnastics that get you from what God prohibits to get you to say of that same text that God celebrates women and pastoral leadership, those kind of interpretive gymnastics, they don't stop with gender. The same cultural pressures to redefine gender roles in the church will push to redefine gender altogether. So the same authors fighting for equality in the pastoral office are now fighting for equality in same-sex marriage and in same-sex ordination. You see it all over. You see it in the United Congregational Churches and the Episcopalian Churches. You see it in the Presbyterian Church USA. You see it in the Methodist Church. The examples are legion. It's just a warning to us. That's where this conversation goes if we're not careful with what Scripture clearly teaches. But that's the warning, a word of encouragement. I want you to walk away from these first two talks, and I want you to walk away recognizing God intends our gendered relationships in this church, in our marriages, in our homes for our good. So in as much as we extol male leadership in the body, we don't want to equate male leadership, though, with a male culture, a male culture that would stifle the right exercise of a woman's gifts. And in my own personal experience, it's particularly when men are poor spiritual leaders that they feel most threatened by the strong spiritual gifting of their sisters in Christ. And just pray that's not true of us. For God intends men to be men and for women to be women, and he intends all those distinctions as we serve together in our various roles and capacities. He intends that for our benefit, for the benefit of this body. So delight, if God's made you a male, delight in how he's made and gifted you to be a male. Delight if you're a female and how he's gifted and equipped you and called you to be a female. You know, I wanted Corey to read early this morning that passage out of 1 Corinthians 12 because we are so prone, just like the church in Corinth, to ascribe only value and dignity to those, those parts of the body that are most visible and most, most public. But think back to 1 Corinthians 12 that Corey read earlier. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. Right? They tended to elevate 
fantastic public ministries, the, the preaching and, and tongues, and they tended to, to devalue others. And Paul's going to say, listen, we can have none of it in the body because God's going to have none of it in the body. God arranged the members accordingly as he desired, giving them gifts as he chose, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, for the common good, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, so that the church, not just individuals, but the church together as a body might be built up, 1 Corinthians 14, 5. So to miss this, right, to ignore it, it's to weaken our ministry, it's to weaken our corporate witness together as a church, it undermines our unity, and it will leave some men and women alike wrongly assuming that their contributions aren't as valuable because they're not paid or they're not as public as someone else's. You know, a friend of mine put it well to me this week. He said, what if God created men and women differently? And what if that's not a question of limitations, but a matter of distinct divine purposes for different parts of the body. But I guess you could say the eye is limited because it can't hear. But isn't that really missing the point? The egalitarianism of our Western culture, for all of its best intentions, is leading us into a world where the lovely and distinct color palettes of men and women are being mushed together in a gray brown muck. Friends, I want you to see that the gospel is displayed best in our rightly ordered, gendered relationships with one another. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. We should be celebrating it, and we should be exercising it and living it out together. Are you? How are you doing that? Let's pray.